You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by SolarAy Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and WattWatchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Energy Insiders for 2018. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK analyst and Renew Economy contributor. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Giles. And I trust all of our listeners are well as also. And I trust our special guest for today is also well. Well, we're hoping so. Um, Dion uh, Campbell from Tilt Renewables, you're the CEO. Um, Thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Good morning, Charles. Yeah, look, um, thanks for joining us. Look, I understand you had a bit of a, um, a long run um, up and down the um, virtual the length of New Zealand yesterday, which sounded pretty vigorous, but uh, I'm glad you're still here with us. Indeed, it was too long for me on Saturday, but um, yeah, it wasn't quite the length. It felt like the length of New Zealand, <laughs> but not quite. Good to be back in Melbourne where it's at least uh, a bit cooler and not wet. Ah, right, yes. Well, I'm up in, today. I'm up in northern New South Wales and just south of... Um, just south of Brisbane, where the heat wave is going through and um, storms are starting to do damage to the grid up there. Look, um, I heard it was I heard it was uh, 114 Fahrenheit in the old scale in Queensland and uh, on the co- even close to the coast. And not only that, but also the uh, humidity, of course, which is a complete killer. The humidity and a couple of hundred thousand strikes of lightning, I think, which put a couple of hundred thousand um, Queensland um, households um, without electricity. And I think um, some of them are still without electricity. So it just goes to show it can hit coal-fired grids just as much as they can hit any sort of grid, really, when you, when you get a series of storms. So in microgrids and resiliency could be the answer there, but on you go, Giles. No, Sorry. well, quite right, actually, and uh, we'll probably get to that point later on. Look, um, we've got Dion um, on board um, as CEO of Tilt. Um, Dion, you made some very interesting announcements last week, um, two of them, in fact. Uh, one was for a new solar and battery storage facility to go next to your Snowtown, um, existing Snowtown wind farm. And the other one was a feasibility study into pumped hydro storage, and this one in particular is an interesting one because it gets, it's an old quarry just outside of Adelaide. Let's just tackle the solar and storage one first. Um, 44 megawatts of um, large-scale solar, 20-something megawatts, 26 megawatt hours of battery storage next to the Snowtown Wind Farm. Why? Well, it's yeah, why? That's a good question. So we've been looking at how co-located solar might work at the Snowtown site for a while now. And as part of our thinking in that area um, and our discussions with the SA government, it became clear um, that there was an opportunity perhaps um, to get their support to look at how solar would also round out that package. So by probably a bit of a curvy road, we got to this position where we were given a a grant by the government. And... um, we're going to have a, a go at putting solar and um, storage at the site. The, the main reason we wanted to do something at Snowtown, um, we've been in that community for more than a decade and they kind of trust us and know what we are trying to achieve. Plus, we've got a, a transmission connection there that's um, obviously not fully utilised with a wind farm running at about 45 or so percent capacity factor. So it just sort of felt like the right space for us to test uh, the ground in terms of solar and adding storage to it just adds another dimension to what we can learn from the site. It's 
So, Dion, I, I take it that's yes, uh, 44 that's megawatts uh, AC. And um, have you? Can you give us a, a bit of a hint at a, sort of what kind of cost saving you get by on the capital side by utilising the existing transmission link? I mean, is it five percent? Do you knock off the solar well, plant that's, cost? That's a really 10%? hard thing to sort of say. It depends what you're comparing it with a, a standalone solar at that site. Um, if there was nothing else there, it would probably cost. Yeah, you're probably looking at more like 10% for a connection, all the infrastructure you need to put in. But as I said, it's already there. So we're that's one of the reasons. It's a um, light touch approach. And I guess it's interesting too because South Australia's got an awful lot of wind and not much utility-scale solar at the moment. In fact, it's just got six megawatts, even though a fair amount is being built. Um, and a lot of the criticism of South Australia's dependence on renewables comes from the fact that the wind, you know, comes and goes as the wind blows. Um, solar, I presume, is going to largely be able to sort of balance that out because a lot of the solar will be producing during the day, of course, which is sometimes when the wind disappears. Yeah, that's the case. At Snowtown, in a way, we definitely have a sort of an evening to night dominated wind mm -hmm. resource. And um, and so solar, with, a, with obviously a day dominated resource, um, fits in really well. And we believe the, you add the, um, the dimension of storage there, and we've got a pretty um, excellent way to utilise that transmission connection and smooth out the you know the things like clouds that come across or the little gusts and wind. So it's the right way to do it. Um, in other parts of Australia, I think that that's sort of dominated uh, by evening wind type output from a wind farm won't be the same. So there'll be a challenge around grid capacity, um, which we don't mm -hmm. have. So, so I was looking at that. I think uh, just your over the past two years, Snowtown one and two, the average outputs about uh, half hourly is about 100, 137 megawatts, and it drops down to one hundred and ten in the middle of the day and gets up to about one hundred and fifty in the early evening. So you can definitely see how the solar is going to provide uh, a kind of natural hedge to that and give you a better overall capacity utilization factor. And, and the economics of the battery, uh, uh, I mean, what about the amount of curtailment that is, is Snowtown seen at the, over the recently? Yeah, so the, you mean curtailment through the now 1,300 megawatt limit that um, is running through SA? That's certainly impacting us along with everyone else in the region. Um, we'll obviously be able to tip some of that um, energy into the battery instead through this as part of the plan. Uh, we also overbuilt the Stage 1 wind farm back in the day to adopt a research turbine, just one turbine, but um, we're now hoping that turbine can be tipped into the battery as well. Um, this gets spilt when all the wind all the wind turbines are on. And the, and the economics of putting the battery uh, are much better when you avoid all the um, grid and network charges. That's why you locate the battery on the side of the wind farm or the PV farm rather than closer to the load. Yeah, well, I think in this case, you know, that utilising the the connection infrastructure makes sense, um, and we're not trying to uh, necessarily match a load uh, per se. We don't have a retail business, so we're just trying to no. have the output from our asset um, as useful as possible for someone who might want to buy it. Yeah, I, I see, and. and uh... Uh, just looking at the battery and the quotes there, have you seen, I've been hearing that these utility scale batteries, we don't see it in the household, but that the utility scale battery costs have probably come down 10 to 15% over the past 12 months. Have you been looking at it for long enough to have a have a view on that? Yeah, we have seen um, about the same reduction in cost uh, for a battery. I think it's still very difficult to say it's an economic 
equally viable proposition. Hence, we've um, we've been lucky enough to win a grant to help us sort of get over those last hurdles. Uh, we still have a little bit of work to do here to make sure that our shareholders are happy for us to do this. Uh, yes, uh, sorry to. Uh... Uh, keep monopolising the conversation just a little bit longer. But uh, I wanted to ask you about Tilt's overall uh, financing because if, as you, all these companies, as they want to grow, have to be able to finance what they're doing. Um, you guys have been very largely contracted, but you're 52% geared at the half year. And, and um, um, you know, the half yearly results were worse than last year because of lower wind output. I just wondered about your ability to finance growth and where the capital for this project and other projects is likely to come from. Yeah, so we were demerged out of trust power for the key reason of building into the um, Australian renewable industry. And so um, we got shareholder support uh, to, to go and grow like this and to look at ways to be a bit different um, than, than the others in, in the industry. So this sort of project will get support uh, if we can if we can show that it's a project that should be supported. And I guess that's our challenge. And we've, you know, last week we announced two pretty exciting opportunities we've got to show the shareholders that we're doing something. And, um, you know, there'll be more coming. And so that's a whole reason for being in business. We will have to raise equity. That's um, that's true. But I think we've got the right support we need. Can I just ask one more question before about pumped hydro, just about the battery storage. You, you said it wasn't quite economic, and I think that's probably the assessment from people. Um, Nexif doing um, the battery storage at Lincoln Gap and um, AGL at Wattle Point. But we also hear from, from, from some of the critics that it's a long, long way away from economic. You know, it's five or ten times the cost. Um, it seems to me that it's kind of not quite there, possibly because we don't have the markets, but not too far off. Um, is that a fair sentiment, or do you think it's um, a bit further away than that? Yeah, look, I think it's possibly a bit further away than that, but uh, but I think you can't just look at um, the costs of the battery. You've got to look at what a company might do with that technology as part of its broader portfolio and sales strategy. And so it's not only about the technology. Also in South Australia, of course, you can't uh, get a planning permit for a new, say, solar farm co-located at a wind farm without some storage component. So there are also regulatory um sort of encouragement. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Hey, let's go on to the pumped hydro one then because this is a, um, a major plant. I can't quite remember. Is it 400 and something megawatts and um, 1,800 megawatts hours of storage? Oh, in an old, uh, no, not quite that much. Not I've quite. got it confused with one of the other ones. Is not it it's 200 much. megawatts? <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're 300, 300 megawatts and about 1,350 megawatt hours of storage and it is in the old quarry at Highbury, which is about 14 kilometres from the centre of Adelaide. So electrically speaking, in terms of supporting Adelaide's network um, and energy system, it's a, it's a prime location. So there's about, I mean, at the same time, the day after that you guys unveiled that with the um, State Energy Minister, the state government announced um, funding into feasibility studies and four other pumped hydro schemes around South Australia, which is an extraordinary amount. Are you guys all sort of competing for a limited market or is, you know, as we move towards, you know, really high percentage renewables, whether it's 90% or 100% or whatever, are we going to need all of those um, pumped hydro schemes? Yeah, I think there's a bit of both. I think there will be some first mover advantage in, in this, but the, the key thing is to make sure you understand clearly your revenue streams and what might impact those. And so we, obviously, that's part of our work over the next 12 or so months. Um, we'll be looking at the revenue side. We're also not, we're not really... 
We're a bit further on than just feasibility. We're actually starting the whole planning approval process and uh, detailed engineering design for our site. And so you might be one of the first ones away then. Yeah, possibly. We've got um, we've been given crown sponsorship for the planning process, um, which mm-hmm. sort of makes it a clearer process. We um, obviously have uh, uh, a lot of our civil infrastructure already in place due to the quarry, and mm-hmm. um, yeah. So we've we've been looking at it for more. Yeah. So what are the economic drivers here? Is it, is, is it the um, assumption of the National Energy Guarantee or something similar or is it, um, or, or is it just the evolution of the markets as, um, with more renewables? Yeah, look, it's, it's an evolution thing. The, the NEG will, will be what it is, but fundamentally um, you, need, you need storage in a renewables-dominated market. And so if, if the country believes that coal or say gas is not suitable anymore for storage, um, which it should, then um, you've got to turn to hydro because because you know, chemical storage is still a long way away from being able to provide the hours and hours of support that um, good old hydro can. Dion, I, I, I'm interested in a couple of bits and pieces about this. You'll also be competing in a sense with the uh, fast start reciprocating engine Barker Inlet uh, gas project. Uh, um, have you had a think about the relative economics of those? I mean, pumped hydro is a is an arbitrage business. You have to, it depends on the difference between the input and the output cost, as opposed to the difference between the gas and the electricity price. I just wondered how you thought about that, just first to start with. Yeah, no, you're right. That's exactly what we're doing. Um, the, the large component of the revenue will be from arbitrage. Um, you've got to realise that we own the largest wind farm in the state and we've got other ambitions in SA uh, with wind and a little bit of solar here and there. So we we see it as enabling probably other investments as well if we have this ability to time shift our energy. So there were just different sorts of uh, pumped hydro that I've been reading about, yours is the sort where you have a quarry or a mine. One of the issues I've heard about that is that the, you have to locate some of the equipment at the foot of the uh, quarry, do you, or, or, or not? Well, certainly the powerhouse has to be at the bottom. Uh, yep. and, and so how will you do that in the quarry? Will you actually, uh, I guess, construct some sort of waterproof area at the, at, the, at the base of the quarry or something like that? So our site, the main quarry location was a, an old quartz or a stone quarry up the top and they've dug that down to some 70 or 80 metres deep. Um, the small dam will augment that by another 30. And then at the bottom of the site where we'll put the powerhouse, we are lucky enough to be able to run over land penstocks, so no tunnelling is required. And then at the termination of those penstocks, we have what was a sand quarry. So they've pre-excavated sand out of there to make a pit and what is left in there are sort of sand fines that we can use to line the bottom lake and our powerhouse will be adjacent to that um, um, some probably 30 meters underground and that sort of construction is not very difficult really no and, and just so in terms of capital cost i mean a couple of the other projects have also got their development approvals in i'm pretty sure goat hills expecting to get theirs approved i was hearing by about july this year how do you, how do you see the capital costs in a relative basis of your project versus versus say that in kaltana well so the way we're looking at that is that we don't have to build a turkey's nest um Compared to, say, a Coltana, we pro- probably don't have the challenges around water 
the, the salt water, saline water. Um, so we think on balance ours should have a, a lower capital cost. However, um, you know, we, we still have a little bit of work to do on geotech studies. By and large, though, I think ours should be one of the best up. Mm. The, um, you, you did mention the fact that the pumped hydro, if um, presumably it goes ahead, will give you opportunities for um, other projects down the line. And I guess what you're referring to then is that I think it's the Mount Palmer wind farm wind project that you've got in South Australia, which I think is in the region of 400 megawatts. I'm wondering if you can describe what other projects you have in the pipeline and what's going to be the policy environment, if any, that's going to enable those projects to go ahead. What are you looking for in the way of signals? Is it going to, just going to be market signals from now on or are you looking for a strong and decent um, policy, um, um, be it from state governments or federal governments? Yeah, so look, in South Australia, something's got to change uh, for us to go and invest in, say, a Palmer because... At the moment, the curtailment is pretty tough for us, and we need those sort of things taken care of. And we think by adding a pumped hydro to the mix, we might help that thinking in terms of um, transmission capacity, um, what sort of grid stability is required by EMO, and so forth. So th there has to be a few things fixed in SA before we'll build again there. Um, the pumped hydro is part of that solution. In terms of the other projects, look, we, we've got a couple of um, wind sites and a solar site we, we are looking at, but it's too early really to announce what those are. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the policy environment that you'd be looking for? I think, I think it would be nice to have clear direction policy-wise in terms of renewables support or otherwise. But in the end, um, if, you, if you live your life hoping that you're going to get some some support that's unusual, then you're probably not going to go far. So we're just pressing on on the basis that the right project um, should be the first off the off the rank under any policy scenario, and uh, that's our mm. job is to get the right projects racked up. That makes sense to so me. Uh, I, I just wondered about the South Australian. I know you've got uh, assets in New Zealand, and I was surprised to see how much the wind was down in New Zealand in the in the December half as well, or the or September half, but. Uh, uh, are you worried about being overexposed to South Australia? No, no, not at all. We we deliberately built the Snowtown site out um, back in the Trust Bower days, knowing that we we were having a big play in South Australia. The um, the wind in South Australia is still one of the best resources in Australia. Uh, we just have been a little bit, um, I guess, hit by this curtailment that has has been put through. But um, but that'll that'll work its way out in time. We, um, we're obviously diversifying into Victoria with Salt Creek and we have a couple of options, other ones in Victoria and also up in New South Wales as we try and round out our portfolio. Dion, can I just ask you about the curtailment you, you've, you've been mentioning that um, uh, several times, exactly to what sort of quantity is that happening? Are you losing you know, 1%, 5 5%, 10%? Um... Yeah, it varies each month. Um... As you know, the, the installed capacity in, in South Australia in total wind is about 1,800 megawatts. They're curtailing to 1,300 under some conditions in SA at the moment, and we pretty much all share it. All, all um, sort of mid-north wind operators share that uh, burden. And so for us, it's, it's, running, it's running less, around about the 5% mark, but it does depend on the day and what the load's doing. At this time of year, when the wind is sort of average and the air conditioning load is mm. up, there's no problem. But um, it was a bit ugly earlier on in the year, uh, last year rather. I, I guess 
I guess you get some price compensation, though, in the sense that whenever the gas is running, the, the prices, you know, you're cur- curtailed but get more money per megawatt hour. Well, yeah, I've heard that argument in the past. Of course, um, many of us have long-term power purchase agreements, so we don't see that effect. Um, so I, th- I, see. I think it's I see. much better to bring it back to a broader why, why are we letting this country spill wind um, mm. because of um, transmission uh, thinking that we probably haven't got visibility on. The answer is because we don't have enough transmission because the AMC has this fairly ridiculous RIT test that is just not um, uh, compatible with the new transmission that's needed for the new generation sources. <laughs> Look, I'm going to um, step in there. Um, um, David, we might just have quickly wrap up the news um, yeah. uh, of the past week. And um, just apologies to listeners if there's a couple of little outages here. We've just been having a few um, issues, but I think we'll probably solve as many as we can in the edit. And um, I'd just like to also um, acknowledge our sponsors, Solar Ray Energy and What Watchers. Thank you very much for your support. David, um, I guess the big news over the past week was AGL Energy. Um kind of fairly revealing um it, it just told us that the uh, price of electricity is n- not just gone up because the price of gas has gone up it's also because the um big generators are making a lot more profit out of it their margins have grown thicker and thicker and thicker over the year look they have giles but i personally don't really um begrudge in any way AGL making money the increase to consumers has actually not been as bad as you might have thought uh, a year ago, and that's partly because at the household level, network charges have reduced a little bit. So the percentage increase in, in, in generation prices hasn't flowed through to the same percentage increase to household or even commercial or big business. So uh, I think if this was the extent to which uh, final prices went up, you could almost live with it. Uh, the question, though, is whether you know AGL and Origin will put prices up again, and whether they're just managing uh, price upwards over time. Uh, yes, they're making more money, but their return on capital, uh, if you looked at it over ten years, is still far from excessive. In all honesty, well, I still think it comes back to the fact that um, most people are paying way too much for electricity at the household electricity level. I mean, they're paying in between thirty, possibly up to forty cents a kilowatt hour if you include those network charges and the unavoidable network charges. Um, that's way too much. Dion, if I can just come back to you, I mean, surely that is a fantastic opportunity over the long term for renewables because. Over time, through microgrids, through storage, through wind and solar, we must be able to provide cheaper electricity to consumers in the long run, can't we? Well, I think all, all the research you'll read shows that both wind and solar um, are the cheapest ways to put new energy um, into a market at the moment, and it's that decline's not been stopping. So I think you did right. Renewables are the future. Um, we've just got to make the transition as a country and move on for the better for the better outcome for our consumers. Mm. Giles, Giles, I want to. Uh, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just about to ask about microgrids and just make, just make mention of the fact that there's actually been some interesting microgrid announcements um, um, just over the last um, over the last week. Um, one was in Kalbarri in Western Australia, where um, a relatively small town at the end of the line, um, shocking series of blackouts because their 130 150 kilometre line, which extends to their town, gets hit by marine salt and winds and bushfires and God knows what else. So, um, Carnegie Clean Energy and Lendlease have won a seven million dollar project to put a battery there 
um, which can run the town and island mode with local renewable, local wind and solar. And it was interesting that the South Australian government um, is doing the same thing with the um, with the local markets. Uh, the biggest produce markets in um, in South Australia. It's actually quite a sizable system, but once again, this microgrid um, view, which is really quite interesting. Um, David, anything else um, to wrap up for the week and the week ahead? No, no, I just want to come back to this point that, uh, of course, wind and PV are the cheapest forms of getting energy into the system, but they're not the only components of a renewable, dispatchable uh, grid. And microgrids, uh, a lot of them are still dependent on the bigger grid, not all of them, um, for backup. And I think most of us still think that the mainstream grid is going to be the best way, certainly, to deliver power to to cities and, and to big business. And to, so to do that, we need all the other components uh, besides the wind and the PV, besides the microgrids, besides the behind the meter stuff. And this is increasingly coming down to a view to how much uh, dispatchable electricity do we actually need and the cost and best, not single way, but all the ways in which we can firm up all this wind and PV and the organisation and system planning and policies that are required to put that in place. Uh, we've all known for many years, just to just to sound it out again, that Australia has a fantastic opportunity to do this. We've got a widely dispersed population, uh, which means that grid costs are always going to be high. We've got wind and PV resources. We've got uh, 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 a good uh, opportunity to do pumped hydro, I think. And so it's a question of putting it all together into a plan framework. And uh, where the resources are, it's almost like the best projects get bit built first in the same way because we've got such good resources i remain very optimistic that over time we're going to go overcome the political difficulties and get it done well let's hope so and that we can bring costs down as they should and look um Dion, um thanks very much for joining us today it's been um really good conversation yeah my pleasure thanks for having me yeah good and good luck with um those projects that we talked about today in um and any future projects um david thanks again uh, thanks, Giles. What have we got to look forward to in this uh, week ahead? Oh, just very briefly, I think the origin results this week, which I think may or may not confirm the amount of money making going on in that market. And um, look, we just seem to be in new project announcement mode at the moment. So um, I think that's going to be interesting. And um, South Australia goes into um, lockdown mode ahead of its election. And I think that's going to be quite a critically important thing to look forward to. We actually saw Origin announcing some gas reserves write-downs, which is a, a bit disappointing. That takes away uh, some uh, some small amount of gas. Anyway, as you say, let's uh, look at these results and uh, reassess. Yeah, great stuff. Look, thanks thanks very much, David. Thanks, Dayon. Um, thanks for all the listeners for tuning in once again. Um, please tell your friends about it and leave a review. And we do appreciate your support. And from the sponsors again, Solaray and Watches. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solaray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solaray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.